After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, it's Raghu, and I want to introduce you to a podcast that I did with Lama Tsultram Alioni, a very good and old friend of mine and many of the other people that you uh, hear on the Be Here Now Network, and uh, it's uh, a conversation we had around uh, her new book, Wisdom Rising Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. I want to tell you a little bit about it, but before I do that, I just want to uh, just mention directly, you've heard a lot over the last few months about 1440, Multiversity, the incredible and incredibly beautiful retreat uh, facility near Santa Cruz that is just uh, holding some of the most, it's hosting some of the most wonderful and talented and wise people in all walks of life uh, at 1440. And we're just so happy uh, to have them as a partner for the Be Here Now Network. It's, uh, our, our values are so aligned and we are really uh, also so, so well aligned with our uh, purpose our mission to really help as best we can get as much information out to everyone, including ourselves, to get to a life in balance. Uh, and I do want to mention a couple of... So one uh, incredible person named Dr. Shafali who uh, does a lot of work around conscious parenting. And if you've seen any of Oprah uh, over the last few years, Dr. Shafali is a, a frequent guest with her. Uh, and she is, uh, I just, uh, her, the podcast uh, isn't up yet. It will be in the next week or so. So you'll be able to get a taste of uh, what she has to offer. And she'll be... Uh, at 1440, uh, April 20 to 22, and uh, also uh, around that weekend, same time, Dan Siegel, who uh, is very well known, uh, will be doing a workshop around develop developing stronger skills for stress resilience. Those of you who don't have any stress shouldn't bother with this, but uh, that's probably, let's see. I think I know one person 
alive right now that actually doesn't have stress, and that's a whole other uh, <laughs> situation. Actually, you'll hear about that on a on a podcast that I've got coming up about uh, my trip to India, uh, where I have been doing these. Uh, uh, we did some field recordings, and uh, it'll be uh, coming up soon around this particular being that we met in the jungles of India. So, 1440, if you're around California, go see, uh, go register, go to 1440 Multiversity and register uh, to go and uh, take that workshop either with Dan or with Dr. Shafali. Now, uh, as far as uh, Lama Tsultram is concerned, uh, she just speaks for herself. She has been with some of the greatest Tibetan lamas uh, of the last uh, century. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but not that. Uh, so uh, particularly the Karmapa 16th, who I also had a darshan of at one time, and I've said this on previous podcasts, he was no more or less, it was just exactly the same space and spaciousness, and no uh, eye at all that you could observe as Neem Karoli Baba as Maharaji. And uh, in this book, she has there's a there's some really uh, there's a lot of personal anecdotes in this book from from Lama Tsultram that are just precious, and particularly around the 16th uh, Karmapa and and how as a a young woman like a teenager, 19 years old, she met him, and uh, committed a few faux pas and he didn't even blink and he just loved her and he ended up uh, ordaining her as a as a Tibetan nun uh, and and so th- there's a lot ar- around mandala in this book and Dakini and she'll explain all of that and uh, it, you'll get a real feel for it in the podcast uh, the other part of this that really fascinated me that we got into that I, I wasn't thinking we were going to get into was around Carl uh, Gustav Jung and his whole thing around mandala, which I never really knew about. Uh, the uh, quote that uh, strikes me here that uh, our people have picked out, the mandala serves a conservative purpose mainly to restore a previously existing order. What restores the old order simultaneously involves some element of new creation. In the new order, the old pattern returns at a higher level. The process is that of an ascending spiral which grows upward while simultaneously growing again and again to the same point. Jung, Carl Jung. Uh, Okay, well, we'll have to... You know, we'll have to go through that and listen to that about a hundred times before we can totally understand it. But uh, in, uh, Lama Tsultram does talk about this in the podcast and and in the in the book. It's fully um, dealt with, and uh, and also her personal encounters with the Dakini, uh, and how we can all find that Dakini Dakini in our own lives. Uh, so. We finish with the topic, my um, current obsession 
in podcasts, which is the topic of karma and how its wisdom can help us uh, identify and address our habituations and detachments in a practical way. So this is a rich, rich podcast with uh, Lama Tsultrum. I hope you enjoy it. And also uh, do check out, uh, you go to 1440 Multiversity and just hit the website and see all of the programs that they have lined up. I mean, it's just, uh, like I say, it covers everything from, I saw some stuff around uh, food and uh, how to relate um, with body wisdom and how to, as Dan Siegel doing that stress thing, skills for stress resilience, conscious parenting. They just have just about everything we could all want to take part in to uh, add to uh, significant information and wisdom to help us on a day-to-day basis, which is what we try to do here at Be Here Now Network. So here we go. This is uh, Lama Tsultrum Alioni on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Hi, it's Rago. I'm back with Mind Rolling. And I'm back with Lama Tsultrum Alioni. Everybody, you all know Lama because she's been on the broadcast podcast before. And uh, she's part of our family of uh, teachers that have been together over many decades around Ramdas and Krishna Das and myself and others. So, uh, welcome. Glad to see you again, Lama. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be with you. And Lama has a, a great new book uh, that I just went through coming called Wisdom Rising, A Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. <laughs> and uh, when this podcast comes out, you'll either buy it straight out or you'll pre-order it. One of the two, and all of that information, of course, will be on BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. We'll have all of the links and everything else. So, one thing that struck me is, uh, let, me, let me see if I can find it. Uh, it's, it's around, really, the scope of this book and, and how you, you, you talked, actually, about um, the relevance of it related to the feminine and related to like making this pointedly towards women and the fact that um, what's going on now, it's very, very topical, obviously, in this society and so on. You say we also see, uh, and you're, there's a lot in here uh, about Dakini, which uh, you'll explain that in shortly, and also Mandala. Uh, those are two Im- important aspects of the mm-hmm. book. And we also see that the Dakini is not only relevant for women, it's r- equally relevant for men, or she is equally relevant for men. I'm relating the Dakini to women in this book because I feel she provides particular strengthening and empowering qualities that we need right now. But we should understand that in Tantric Buddhism, men practice with male and female deities, and women practice with both female and male. So this is probably a good thing to expand and, and relate uh, the scope of the book in that, uh, putting it in that direction, Lama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the feminine as it's rising now 
is a political issue, but it's also a spiritual issue. And so part of what I talk about in the book is how women in nature have been treated in a parallel way. Uh, in the sense that whenever nature has been disrespected and uh, neglected, misused, so have women. And I track that historically and statistically also. And so what's happening now is really at a crisis of near extinction of humanity and many species, you know, we don't talk so much about the potential extinction of humanity, but it's actually, it, it, it's a possibility, especially with the leadership that we have now. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we've really brought ourselves to an extreme situation, we could say, in nature and also in terms of women. And so the the arising that is happening now with the women's marches and me too and time is up and so on all those incentives to me also have spiritual roots and a, and a potential spiritual solution or at least a spiritual addition, I guess you could say, an additional spiritual component. Um, so in the book, I, I talk about the, the Dakinis, and they are embodiments of wisdom. They're fierce, and they're fabulous. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they dance, they're, they are dancing. Um, they're sexual and they're spiritual. And they're also, um, they oversee nature. Uh, and I can tell some stories about that also. So the Dakinis are probably the most important aspect of the feminine in Tibetan Buddhism. And it's also an energy of pulling the rug out from under you. And also the Dakini energy is something you often meet when you're in transition. And we are certainly in transition right now as a culture. And I wonder how many people who are listening today are also in transition in their lives. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were quite a few uh, because often the Dakini comes to you or appears in your life when you're in transition. In any case, the Dakini is this wild and wise energy of the feminine, very powerful, very potent. And in Tibetan Buddhism, a male could practice the Dakini practice. And in fact, all serious practitioners do, um, male and female, and a, a male, teacher could also uh, practice Tara, for example, a male teacher or student, um, and then vice versa. So women would practice male deities, which is kind of one of the cool things about Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhist teachings is that it's gender fluid. 
in the sense that you actually, like, if you were doing, if you were a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, you would probably do a practice like Vajrayogini, who is a female energy connected to the inner heat practice and so on. And you would become her, right? In that practice. So practitioners do both and move into the actual experience of being a different gender, but it's, it's a gender, like uh, a, a transmuted gender or a transformed gender in the sense that these beings, uh, the deities in tantric Buddhism are really luminous, pure light energies that are embodied in these various forms and which we as human beings who are not pure light beings where you know we're, we're uh, in element bodies um, we identify with them to sort of like actually illuminate literally ourselves through identification visualization mantra and so on and so that quality of the dakini i see as being really important right now because a lot of what's arising in women and in men is anger. Um, there's frustration, there's um, feelings of fear that produces anger, fear of having our rights taken away and so on. So we have this upsurge of anger, uh, which we see in, in all these movements. But then what do you do with that? Obviously you can do legal, actions which are important but how do you transform that energy in your own body into something which is transformative in a positive sense how do you work with that anger to create the, the change that you want to see and also to keep it in, in your own center to to stay centered whole and to act with wisdom and not just act out of random anger. And so the mandala, which you mentioned also in the beginning, the, the book is called Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine. So in the book, I take you both my journey, which is somewhat of an, a memoir, which you read and found familiar places <laughs> and people in it, um, and it's so it's got that quality. So it's my journey, but it's also your journey into this mandala. So a mandala uh, literally means the center and the fringe. And so um, actually, I have a mandala right here. I'm going to hold it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is a mandala. Mm. So this is a Tibetan mandala and cultures all over the world have create mandalas, but the Tibetan tradition really developed this idea of the mandala, the specific meaning of each direction in it. And so what it is, is a centering template or a blueprint of the enlightened mind. And actually, although we see like with this one, uh, we go, uh, it looks two dimensional, right? Yeah. But actually 
actually it's three-dimensional. A mondo is actually a, a palace. And within that palace, there are deities. In the case of the five Dakini mandalas, there's five, center in four directions. But you've been, I know, to the Kala Chakra empowerment with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There's over 200 deities in that mandala. Hmm. And then there's, there's four doors that go into it, four gates. And so <clears throat> when you place your mind, your psyche, into a mandala through visualization, you are creating a holistic space in which you're placing your psyche. And that then reunites the fragmented psyche or fragmented mind that's all over the place into wholeness. And so that's the power of the mandala. So in the book, I talk both about the Dakinis and then the five families connected to them that are in the mandala and also the meaning of the mandala. Mm. How, I mean, for everybody listening, and of course, uh, there are many people, and you know I've discussed this before, and we've discussed it when you came to Maui to teach at the retreat about how can we get this related in a way that somebody who's not a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner necessarily can actually use the concept and the uh, practice in a way mm -hmm. that is... Uh, because what you were talking about before the fragmentation, the separation, the polarization that's going on now, uh, the, the loss of respect for feminine principle uh, that's endemic, uh, obviously, with everything coming out, and that, at that displacement, and the fact that the Dakini comes at that time. Can we, can we talk about it in a, in a practical term where people feel this kind of displacement mm -hmm. and how do they actually experience the energy of the Dakini and how can they use it to heal? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. The five families, which are what the five Dakinis are connected to, are something that anyone can relate to. So these are called the five Buddha families, and they're connected to obstructed emotional patterns, directions, colors, times of year, times of day, and so on. But the, the key piece of the five families is the transformation of the obstructed emotion <clears throat> into wisdom. And so for example, let's say, uh, let's say your Padma family. Uh, Padma family is connected to desire, grasping, craving. Um, Padma people, for example, are not really uh, able to go deeply into relationship. They're very interested in seduction. And the, the, the energy, the magnetism that it takes to seduce someone, but they don't, once you kind of get into the work of a relationship, they're not interested anymore. They like that superficial energy buzz that you get mm -hmm. through seduction. 
so so let's say you're Padma and you have that yeah that's your your issue we could say that very energy of Padma that grasping craving desire has within it the potential of wisdom when the grasping quality the the holding on to quality is released that energy becomes wisdom of discernment or or all discriminating wisdom and so that wisdom can see relationship it can see relationship of objects for example colors so that padma family is connected to the arts colors shapes and so on and also can see relationship with people but doesn't have that personal investment in it can see with a discernment and work with relationship and work skillfully with people but without that selfish obstructed encumbered pattern of the emotion before it becomes the wisdom so that's one example of five families and so there's one connected to anger and that becomes mirror like wisdom there's one connected to pride which is also a feeling of not being good enough not being enough in yourself so you have to inflate yourself pretend to be more so that becomes wisdom of equanimity and then there's one connected to jealousy or envy which is also connected to speed and ambition and that becomes all accomplishing wisdom and then the central one at the base of them all is connected to what's traditionally called marika or ignorance non-recognition but that hooks into the emotions of depression denial procrastination um spaciness and that spaciness becomes spaciousness at the mm-hmm. wisdom level all accomplishing wisdom so your question was okay how how can some non buddhist norm, normal 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 <laughs> are any of us normal um how can how can somebody that doesn't um relate to this or know this framework relate to this these ideas so the five buddha families are very relatable once you hear them you'll know which one you are maybe you're connected to a couple of them mm-hmm. and then the what i present in the book is how to work with certain sounds which are called seed syllables and light color so sounding a seed syllable and light to transform those emotions into the wisdom that's the method and then they're all connected to the mandala and so you do this transformation through light and sound in in the structure in the in that blueprint or template of the mandala and so all of the obstructed patterns at least while you're in the meditation are transformed into the five wisdoms hmm. and it's well laid out in this book uh, many many different practices uh actually for each chapter on on the family the, the five different families each chapter has practices so uh, yeah. everyone who's listening out there there 
it, it's fairly direct. I wouldn't say just simple. Um, uh, but even if you are not practicing Tibetan Buddhism, you could look at these things, especially around mandala, because uh, I think many people have an affinity once... Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't see a mandala and sit for a moment with it. You can't just go, oh, that's nice, and move on. I mean, I think it would be very difficult to do that. So if you just take that initial uh, response to to the, uh, first of all, grasping the concept of the mandala, and then sitting with it, I think you have a great beginning point in, in, in being able to follow some of the uh, practices in, in the book that you would um, feel comfortable with and that could really uh, to help, as, as uh, Lama is saying, transform negative emotions, mm-hmm. which we're all dealing with on a day-to-day basis. One of the other things that, by the way, um, now I'm a... I guess I just didn't know a lot about Carl Jung. I mean, I know, like everybody knows, and I even did some therapy work with a Jungian analyst many years ago. Uh, and uh, but I didn't know the the breadth of his relationship with Mandala. And uh, you you quote yeah. him: "The Mandala serves a conservative purpose, namely to restore a previously existing order." What restores the old order simultaneously involves some element of new creation. In the new order, the old pattern returns at a higher level. The process is that of an ascending spiral which grows upward while simultaneously returning again and again to the same point. Uh, I mean, he's phenomenal. And you, you really do talk about this. And uh, um, there, There's some... Just throughout the book, actually, there's a lot mm-hmm. of references to Jung, so that obviously is, was very important too. And then there's one towards the end, Lama, that that knocked my socks off because it's you talked. Uh, let me see if I can find. Oh, this whole thing about one of his uh, students, uh, Dora Kalf, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She and she, uh, she was trained as a Jungian analyst and also studied Tibetan Buddhism. She developed, yeah. and when I read this, I went, "Whoa, Jesus!" She developed the now world famous sand play therapy. Mm-hmm. So I don't even think I ever told you this, but when I first went to India, I uh, Ramdas was there, and uh, he said, "I," uh, he said, "As soon as you get to India, I came there." Maybe a couple of months after he went back the second time. He said, you know, write to me and I'll, wherever Maharaj Neem Karoli Baba is, you know, I'll tell him, tell you where to go. And he couldn't find him, and which is where you all met. I wasn't at that, uh, the Vipassana in, thing in Bodh Gaya, right? I met you after that, but that's where you met. Every, and I was at the Sri Aurobindo Ashram in, uh, in southern India, right? And I went, and there was a Swiss psychologist who was also a student of Jung. And I went, and I was visiting him, and I noticed a few sandboxes. And I said, oh, you have children here? And he said, well, yeah, they do, but really it's for adults. They come, and you just play, and then we examine what it is that you've done. So I said, well, I'd like to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Can I try it? Oh, my God. So I did it. And 
what I did ended up, he said, this is the archetype of the Western um, penchant for saving the world. They're going to come, and I had a cross in the middle, and I had something in each direction, in each corner. I had it all perfectly laid out. It was just it was like crucifying myself. And <laughs> the the interesting thing was I went, and uh, I don't know if you know, Sri Aurobindo had a, uh, yeah. a partner, mother, who was a yeah. saint. And I went there because I wanted to meet her. And I was, mm. she was not well, and I couldn't meet her. Meanwhile, I did this thing. As soon as I did, right after I did this, this reading, uh, playing in the sandbox, which revealed all of this, you know, sexual stuff and a whole realm mm -hmm. of, like, where I wasn't. <laughs> I got right. so sick. I got hepatitis, right? Oh. And then I was really sick. And then as I just got healthier, I started uh, reading... Um, the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna and, and came into my first contact with divine feminine. Mm. First time I really had any relationship yeah. through, through him and through that huh. book. And then right after that, I got better and I, I had a darshan of mother and I went into a room and she was very old. I think she had Parkinson's cause she had lost motor control. And I was, I was completely freaked that I was going to have to, you know, am I going to get caught in some old person's, th you know, I was just, I was 24 years old, okay, <laughs> whatever, and uh, I went in there, and, and it was the classic nothing but light, and she just totally enveloped me in 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 the goddess, the feminine, I mean, it was just, they had to drag me out of there, I mean, I'd lost all <laughs> awareness of anything, and I went back, and I did a sandbox again with this psychologist, uh, Jungian uh -huh. guy, and it, my whole thing transformed completely as a result wow. of this emergence of uh, a connectivity to divine feminine. So oh. when I read this, I, th I remembered all of that. I hadn't thought about it in forever. It was, uh, it, anyhow, my little story there. That's but, really interesting. I, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah. so he, he was probably connected to Dora Kalf then. Yeah, he must have been because he was from Switzerland, yeah. So yeah, Jung, what, you're obviously a very important figure for you because it's very much in this book. His yeah, yeah, and I talk about in the beginning how I was, uh, and when I was sixteen, I was in Harvard Square wandering around because my grandparents were retired professors in Cambridge, and um, and I was in the Coop, you know, the Harvard Coop. That yeah. big kind of department yes. store connected to Harvard. Yeah. And I came upon I came upon this book and it had a Tibetan mandala on it. And I was struck by what you just said about it's really hard to not stay with a mandala when you look at it, you know. So I saw this mandala. I might have that book here somewhere. But anyway, I saw it and um I couldn't I couldn't take my eyes off the mandala. And it was it was like I went into it and started going into another dimension through it. And and here I am, you know, 60 years old in a bookstore in Cambridge. And it was called Man and His Symbols, oh. Carl Jung. Oh. And so I bought it and I took it home 
to my grandparents' little white house in Cambridge and opened it up and it had Tibetan mandalas in it, as well as other things like the rose windows and Chatra and, mm. you know, the massive cities that were mandalas. So he kind of tracked how mandalas are everywhere in that book. And it had just been published actually at that that year. And so it was that it was that book that was actually the thread that I was following when I went to India in 1967. It was, I went to, I wanted to learn how to paint mandalas because I was a painter. And and so that's how I ended up in Dharamsala and met the Tibetans. And Mm. they told me it would take a a year (laughs) to learn how to paint one mandala. And I was like 19, you know, I wasn't going to spend a year, you know, looking at that. So, but anyway, it was, um, it was it was the image of the mandala that actually brought me to the Dharma. Wow. So it's interesting for me now, you know, with all these decades that have passed, to be writing a book about that. So in a way, it's sort of like, you know, what that quote that you read from Jung about the spiral. Yeah. It's kind of like this spiral that it's 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 the same spiral, but it's new. And it keeps taking you deeper into the center of the mandala. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, Jung is interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting figure. And also, he was very connected to Tibetan Buddhism. And also the I Ching, which you probably remember, Mm. you know, that Wilhelm and that whole idea of synchronicity. Yeah. That that is part of throwing the coins in the aging. Hmm. Yeah. God, I haven't done that in a long time. We just that was really a a part of uh, growing into yeah. into the east. But I also we did lo- it. Sorry, go ahead. We did we did it yesterday here. Oh really? At Tarmandala. Oh. We do it every year on Tibetan New Year, and we we look at the we do it for Tarmandala for the center. And uh, it's kind of like a prophecy and also guidance for the mm. coming year. Mm. So we just did it. Oh, <laughs> and really? I was talking about this yesterday to the community that were here at my house. Because we on, on uh, for Tibetan New Year, we have this series of parties. And we go from different people's houses at Taramandala uh-huh. starting in the morning. And so we, we did this at my house in the morning. And I was talking about Jung and the, and the I Ching and the mandala. And, you know how this has really mm. been an important part of my development, mm. and the idea of synchronicity, which is yep. really interesting. Uh, that Jung wrote an essay on that, and he was the first one to really write about that. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. And by the way, everybody, uh, in this book, as uh, Lama Tiltram says, this is a part memoir to the book. Uh, and just wonderful stories of of your journey, like little things, like you're 18, 19 years old, you get there, and someone tells you about uh, His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, and you go over there, and they're doing these, you know, important, quote-unquote, rituals and rites and all that, and you pop into his room and just go over there, you know, just without (laughs) any... uh, shall we say, it, yeah, or anything, and, and how he, and he lit up, how you say, he lit up with the most gigantic 
smile and I mean I, I, I relate with him so much because I did meet him yeah. as well and he was just Maharaji there was no difference whatsoever I mean between the two of them in the on the ultimate plane uh, even mm. yeah so just that one little sentence in the whole book was like oh god <laughs> so great and uh, you remember you know, that feeling yeah mm, mm, I bet you, you know that's something that is with you forever and ever and ever. Um, yeah, really yeah. lovely. Uh, you you said before. Yeah, go. Well, I was going to say, as I said earlier in that story, that I I had heard about Karmapa, but I heard he was really fat and yeah. that he wore gold watch, and so I didn't want my guru to be fat. I or wear a gold watch. And so I didn't want to go see him. I wanted a thin, yogic-looking guru. <laughs> Hollywood guru. <laughs> so I just eliminated him as an option. <laughs> yeah, right. Which I later realized was so ridiculous. Well, then you tell the story of you, you did meet a really beautiful-looking Tibetan yogi uh, who you were thinking, yeah. now this would be a good guru. And he, and he, he said... Karmapa's your guru. Jow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably yeah, Jow. That's so he good. Yeah. Uh, um, so we uh, just before you were talking about uh, Dakinis and uh, you said I have a couple of stories. So let's hear a couple a story, at least one, about an experience with a Dakini. Oh. I mean, I know one. I could I could prompt you that that uh, because yeah, there's a maybe pic prompt me prompt you okay you did a ceremony at uh actually you know what i just talked to our mutual friend and i thought it was at taramandala but it was actually when we were all living in uh new york in upstate new york when you were there by the lake and yeah. you did a ceremony there and the manifestation of that cloud which there's a picture of the bikini uh, tell that mm -hmm. story that that's yeah yeah, that actually was in Ojai, California, Ojai. the Ojai Foundation. Yeah. Okay, so it happened more I, than once because Michael remembers it being in Rockland. I, no, no, it was, um, I had the photograph there in Rockland, but I was uh, at Ojai Foundation doing a retreat. Hmm. I think it was 1989. And uh, we had done a Dakini retreat, and it really was very magical. I had just met my husband, David, and he was there with me. And there was something about my energy with his energy that was very alive, vibrant. And the retreat was incredible. There were probably 50 people, maybe 40, I don't know. And we did. it was pretty long, like two weeks. And we had worked with each of the five families in this process that I've been talking about of working with the obstructed emotion, but much more in depth than what I just told you uh, for five, five families. And um, so at the end, we had uh, brought out all our masks. We made five masks also wow. for each of the five Dakinis. So we brought out all the masks to do kind of closing ceremony. We put on the first one, the Buddha Dakini. And I had had a dream the night before of a white 
bow that went all the way across the sky, like I started at one horizon and went to the other horizon. Very weird thing to dream about, but but striking enough that I had remembered it in the morning. And so as we were there with a mess, that bow formed in the sky, this arc of white light over us. And then I was like, wow. And then the the white turned into the dakini. And she was not static. She was dancing. And it was really clear. You can see it in the book, the, the image. Uh, it's, not, it's not like you have to, like, use your imagination. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and so she was there for about 20 minutes dancing with us, and we were dancing with our masks on. And we were in such a kind of altered state that it didn't even seem that weird that there was this dakini in the sky dancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody did have the wherewithal to get a camera and take a picture, but I didn't think about taking a picture. I was just in this process. So, um, yeah, the dakinis have a way of taking you somewhere you need to go when you're in transition. And one of the things, another kind of story that's connected that I was thinking about with the Dakinis that came up actually while I was writing the book was I was writing about this idea of Dakinis appearing when you're in transition. And I had just been to the birth, the fourth birth of my children that I have attended. And it just, just had happened. And it was my older daughter, Sherab, who you know. And um, she's, she was uh, 43, second child. You know, 43, you don't get pregnant that easily, usually. Hmm. So anyway, it was a very wanted baby. And um, she she's very athletic, you know. <laughs> She, she does these things like ski races where you run up the mountain with your skis and then you race down the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> but birth, birth was a whole other thing, you know, that like no matter how athletic you are, it takes you through it. And so when she was in this time called transition, you know, when the la- that last few cent- centimeters of the uterus opening, when the baby goes then into the birth canal, it's called transition, and it's the hardest time of labor. And so what I saw in that moment was she became so powerful and so wrathful and so like, no nonsense and don't ask me any stupid questions. And, you know, like, I have to do this. And she was in in like a bath, you know, water birth. Mm-hmm. And and so each contraction, she was like, wow, out of the bath. And and she was shaking and she was she was the Dakini, you know. And I was like, this is another aspect of the Dakini, the fierce feminine that women have to get in touch with to have a baby. That you have to, at least my experience is, at some point, you have to connect to your primordial animal wildness to give birth mm-hmm. and so anyway this uh energy she was also kind of dancing 
and um, the Dakini's dance. And I was like, this is it, this is transition. And this is the Dakini. And this is feminine fierceness in its most primal form. So that, that was really, um, it was like, when, you know how you kind of go on, like here I am writing this book, and then all of a sudden something happens in your life and you're like, this is what I'm trying to say. Mm. This is what I'm writing about. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That, <laughs> that connection to that visceral, raw, feminine energy you do talk about this is not about ultimately there's no gender you talk about that in the book is there a way yeah. for a, a a male practitioner to bring that energy and i mean i feel like when i like when i said that i did that whole sandbox thing in south india and and then had darshan of mother and read that yeah. the ramakrishna book suddenly i i had finally a, a real connected cuz i had terrible time with as everybody parents in that time you know it was very difficult uh not everybody but uh so there that was the beginning of something that was really powerful for me is there a way to actually uh engender that in practice uh as a male to engender the feminine within the male and that aspect which most males are terribly afraid of it's interesting that you're using the word engender hmm. really to go into the gender, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I said, men do the Dakini practice equally mm. as often as women, and they need that too. They need their they need that strong, powerful, primal, wild woman in themselves to balance you know and that's you know that's again Jung is like now the, the unhappy male is often unhappy because he is disowning his feminine sure. yeah. he's not he's not allowing her he's not giving her 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 rights and so you know the way that Jung first started talking about the anima and the animus animus meaning the male aspect for the woman and the anima the male the female aspect for the man um it actually came to him um when he was he was finding himself i've forgotten exactly the words he described but he was disturbed and he was kind of angry and nasty you know and um and he couldn't figure out what that was, you know, what was that in him that was happening. And when it came out, it was his anima, it was his feminine. Mm. And he allowed her to take form. And he dialogued with her. And then that whole part of him, that sort of negative, uh, irritated part of him relaxed because mm. he was giving her a voice. Uh. So it, it's actually really important for men. I focus on women in this book because of my own feeling of the, I feel passionately that we need to get the feminine back. But this really isn't a female issue. 
women don't oppress themselves. Patriarchy is created by men. Women didn't make it, you know? And so we can't, we can't also take it away, you know, until men realize it's their issue too <laughs> and that they're missing something by not having an honored feminine. And, you know, I was thinking about you and uh, Sidima as in the Ma's around Maharaji, that this was the feminine aspect that was surrounding him. Like, you know, in the Guru Rinpoche prayer, Kordukandra, he, he's surrounded by Dakini. And that, that that aspect of Siddhi Ma and, and the Ma's created like the container uh, for Maharaji to be in and also fed you, fed all of you who were around the, the nurturing of the feminine principle in that situation. Yeah. That's beautifully said. And is quite real for us for all those years yeah oh boy um there's a story in the book and i think it's really uh important you were um i believe you're in bali and you there was somebody who came along who wasn't part of the retreat that you were going over there with but she wanted (laughs) to join the retreat um can you tell yeah. that story a little bit because it's um it, it's yeah that was very interesting yeah so so we arrive in bali i'm going to teach a dakini retreat with a lion-headed dakini in a place called singaraja which means the lion king so i'm in ubud we all have jet lag i'm with my kids who are little that not so little like maybe uh, 11 and 13, just with the girls at that time, mm. not my son. And, um, and so we're, we decided to go for a walk at like 3 a.m. <laughs> we're all awake. And yeah, so yeah. We're, walk, we're walking through, the, through um, the countryside and then we kind of came down the street in a little village and we came across people who were in the middle of the, of the street chopping something. And since they were the only other humans around at that hour, we stopped and talked to them and they were preparing for a funeral of a woman. And so we kept returning, you know, cause this jet lag was going on for a while. And then we got invited to the funeral. So we went to the funeral and I'm at the funeral and there's another Western woman there. and. She's looking at, she keeps looking at me, and I, you know, so finally she came up to me and she said, why are you blue? And I was like, I'm not blue. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, no, no, you're blue. And I said, oh, I understand. Because I practice the blue-black dakini. That's my main practice. So I'm spending a considerable part of the day visualizing myself as this blue-black dakini, Mm. lion-headed dakini. And she said, lion-headed dakini? And I said, yeah. She said, I just received that empowerment in Austria. And I came to Bali to do a retreat of the lion-headed dakini. (laughs) And I just, yes. And I was just was looking for a place to do it. And I said, well, 
no accidents. I think, you know, you should come to this retreat. But we work with emotions, you know, at these retreats. It's not just meditation. We work with transforming emotions. And he said, oh, emotions. Uh, Those are just waves in the ocean, you know. You shouldn't pay any attention to them. And I said, yeah, they are just waves in the ocean, but we need to pay attention to them. Because if we don't, the waves become a storm and we get tidal waves. Anyway, she agreed to come to the retreat, sort of reluctant about this emotion thing, uh, but she came. And uh, the first night of the retreat, I was in my room and uh, one of the assistant teachers came running in and she said, um, her name was Andrea, I think. Andrea fell from the second floor onto concrete, it was a horrible sound. So she'd been climbing up a ladder into this Balinese house and she'd fallen and onto concrete. Mm. And so I went to see her. I said, I think you should go to the hospital, possibly Australia, because that's the only good hospitals at that time. This was 1990. Um, and she said, I don't want to go. And I said, okay, well, you can stay tonight, see how you are tomorrow. But if you're not better, you, you know, you're going to need to go. And so she was projectile vomiting, hmm. which is a sign of very bad con- concussion. concussion. She couldn't move. She couldn't move. She couldn't sit up. So the next day I said, okay, well, try one thing. Uh, we'll do the chud practice for you, which is this practice of uh, it's a shamanic Tibetan practice in which you feed your demons. So I set it up with um, my, uh, you know, some of my more senior students. We put her sat, you know, around where she was lying on this couch under this outdoor area in Bali by the ocean. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this, but I don't think it's gonna work and we're gonna have to airlift her. And so I closed my eyes. I know the practice by heart and did it. And it takes about maybe 25, 30 minutes to do. And when I I opened my eyes again, she was sitting up smiling bowing and then she got up and what i had seen in in the practice were all these things coming out of her um coming up from her sexual area out through her mouth Hmm. like these sort of white um like ghosts kind of like spirit things and there were a lot of them and it was very intense and but I kept my eyes closed. I just kept doing it until they were all fed. And then when I opened my eyes, the people that were with me said, you know, we were going to stop you because she went into a, um, you know, like a fit. She was, uh, she was jerking all over and we, 
we were really afraid of what was happening. But since you kept going, we just let it go. And then it went on for a while and then it stopped. And so I said to her afterwards, um, you know, privately, of course, I said, you know, I saw something coming out of your sexual area and out of your mouth. And what what I what I would guess from this is that you have a history of sexual abuse and that you were not allowed to talk about it. So that's why your mouth. And she she got completely white and she said, How did you know? Mm. Wow. How did you know? I I am adopted. And my father, my adopted father abused me. And I was so afraid of being thrown out and having a family. I didn't say anything. And it went on for years. So she had all this buried stuff, you know, that no wonder she didn't want to work with her emotions. So, yeah, that's that's the story. And not uncommon story, unfortunately. Uh, but I think, uh, just in terms of how many, and I, I see many people who take advantage of Buddhism, both Hinayana, Vajrayana, Mahayana, whatever, uh, and maybe this is, uh, Ramdas's bugaboo about it. They don't attend to the deepest part of their emotions and they don't attend to their heart. And uh, Mm -hmm. you say in this book, uh, in my experience, although it is true on the absolute level that emotions are waves, uh, on the relative level, we need to work with our emotions and transform them in a tangible way. That's Mm -hmm. a a huge takeaway for people to absolutely consider when they're on the path and practicing, for sure. So, Yeah, you know, the... Um, something I was just thinking about today is attachment you know and there's all these attachment theories now uh, about how important attachment is and and how Buddhism because it talks about being not attached that attachment is a problem it's a perfect refuge for someone who isn't healthily attached to those they're intimate with starting with their parents so then they go, oh, non-attachment. Yeah, I'll be safe there. You know, I don't have to connect yeah. with anybody. And, yeah. and it's, it's what the Buddha advised. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Spiritual, you know, the bypass stuff. Spiritual bypassing. Yeah. yeah. That we go. So, Lama, we're close to the end, but I do want to get something from you because what we've been doing, um, and I'll just briefly tell you, uh, I did a podcast, uh, oh, some time ago, a, few, a couple of months ago, with Robert Svoboda. I don't know if you know Robert or who he is, but Robert wrote him. these great Agora books about his guru, Vimalananda, who was yeah. in Agora in India. And the third mm-hmm. of the books was called The Law of Karma. And it just, we've been talking to our mutual friends, or I have been, uh, Sharon, about, uh, we have a whole thing going on. I'm trying to get her to write a book called getting real because a friend asked her what do you do in your practice and she said i sit and i get real that's what i do and uh so we're we're on this whole thing about getting real and dealing with our day-to-day projections the story we tell ourselves and uh, habitual patterns and that led me to robert and and uh 
really, there some wonderful things around karma, and and obviously karma, the action of body, speech, and mind, it affects every aspect of our lives. And I, I'm trying to just uh, get out of all of our friends a little bit about how uh, the wisdom of karma can really help us in our day-to-day -day practical way of dealing with some of the habituations that have been there through uh, ca other cause, cause and effect all the way to past lifetime. Can I just get you to say a little bit about how you've looked at karma in you know through your own prism through your life and how uh, understanding of its principles perhaps has really mm -hmm. helped you yeah the big well, the question throwing I, over the wall but uh, I, uh, the word karma means action and uh, the way it's been understood in the west is basically about past karma is what people think karma is, but karma is action. And so it's actually right now we're, we're creating karma. You and I are creating karma with all these people that are listening to this because we're, we're impacting them with our words and if they can see them visually as well. So I think your question is, how do I relate to karma? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. How, what, yeah. What I've noticed is that the more I practiced, the faster karma ripened. I think when you, you know, when you start out, you've got so much stuff, <laughs> you know, so much um, accumulated past karma that, uh, it's kind of like, you know, karma ripens and there need to be causes and conditions. So there's the seed of a karmic act that you do, but it doesn't always ripen immediately. Often there will be even lifetimes before it ripens. And that's why people say, well, you're like, how can you, um, how can you say karma exists when look at Hitler? Nothing really happened to him. He just died, you know, but it will. So, so, what I've noticed is that I don't know if it's just being on the path or maybe over the years things clearing more so that there was less sort of backlog uh, through practice and uh, purification and so on. But what I've noticed is if I do something either positive or negative, that it seems like the results come very quickly. And the other thing that I've noticed is it's inescapable. Like you can't, you can't do something and like, okay, but that, that one doesn't count, you know? Like that, that one, that's not gonna go in my karmic bank, you know? Um, one, of the, one of the things that says in one of my texts is karma is infallible. It's a law and we call it a law. You know, it's not like you can pick and choose what karma, karma, uh, a cruise. It, 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 it's not a choice. It's action and it has a reaction. So I think that's made me um, try to clear things up that aren't good with people quicker because then if you don't, you know, it's going to be another life <laughs> you have to do it in. And of course, not, not to create things that you 
we'll have to deal with in that way. And then also to try to generate merit. And I think merit is something that we underestimate in Buddhist teachings in the West. The importance of sonam, you know, that doing good things, generosity, um, kindness, all of those things that accumulate positively, that it's really important to consciously do that, not just like happen to do it. And I think that's a way that we in the West are different than Asian Buddhists who are very aware of that. And they do it a lot consciously. They actually do things that create positive karma because they understand that it, it is infallible. And if you want happiness, which we all do, then create your happiness now by what you do because you're, that's, your present is your future. You're creating your future now. Yeah. And a little bit maybe about one last thing just around this subject. Uh, the advantage of uh, practicing of awareness, understanding motivation, understanding uh, mm -hmm. the creation, getting, I guess, enough spaciousness to see where these actions uh, can sometimes go a long way to supporting the uh, endemic habitual patterns that we create for ourselves. How do you see us being able to uh, get into a uh, sort of a gap that, that you're not, that there's enough spaciousness that you can actually witness what you're, mm. you know, what you're creating all the way to motivation? Yeah. Yeah, well, meditation. <laughs> I think I think we're understanding more and more the importance of meditation. If we think of it as like um, daily life is like having water in a jar with dirt in it, and we spend all day doing this, shaking it up. So we can't see through that water, right? When we meditate, we put that jar down and it settles, right? And then you can see through the water. If you just keep shaking, it's not going to happen. And so all these scientific studies that are being done now about how meditation helps you be more productive, it lowers your blood pressure and so on, all that are you know, sort of in a way worldly uh, benefits that um, are now convincing people they should do it. But really, it is that sense of letting it all settle, partly to, to create the space to be aware of what we're doing when we're not meditating. And also when you sit and uh, here, you know, the whole community just came out of a two week retreat, where everybody was alone for two weeks in their cabins. And people said it was, you know, a lot of people said it was really hard because all these things came up that I haven't looked at, you know. So uh, that's part of it settling. Then you see these things that when you're shaking the, the jar, you don't see them. So meditation creates that space from which you, you then go into your day or uh, your life. And, and, with that space, then you're going a little bit 
slower. You're going a little with a little bit more awareness. You're, you're less likely to just be reactive and bouncing off the walls and creating more confusion than if you actually stop. And so really, I really think it's meditation. You know, and, and of course, motivation is important. Uh, the, the motivation to practice for all beings. We have, we have a yogi now living at Tara Mandala who was in retreat for 16 years. Amazing, beautiful yogi. And so he taught a, an open meditation to this, you know, at an open house that we have in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, which is, it's not a sophisticated audience. And um, he said to the people, uh, if you don't have motivation to practice for all beings, you shouldn't meditate. And then, you know, our, our director said to me today, she said, I don't think you should say that to these people because, you know, they don't even know what that means, like motivation. They just want to learn to meditate. But I realized how, you know, him doing that was how that idea of bodhicitta or intention to benefit others, to act for the benefit of things, is so imbued in, in the teaching and in the practice that, it's like you wouldn't teach meditation without it. Right. Now meditation is being taught without it. You know, like, you know, because it's going to make you feel better. And I actually think that's fine. I think it can go slowly. You know, you, you realize the benefits that you're calmer, or your blood pressure is lower or whatever. And then those teachings of motivation can come into it. But it, it's good to have that uh, come along fairly soon. Yeah. 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 Especially when we all realize just the level of our self cherishing, as the Tibetans do put it, which I think is a beautiful term. Uh, That level is so high. It's what, um, when we went and we were with Neem Karoli Baba in India and saw, oh my God, you can be there without that I that is predominant around a satisfying the, as Krishnas calls it, the movie of me day, day in, day out. And, you know, that, of course, he was that example. He is that example. Karmapa is that example and many others. Uh, but so I do believe that that motivation to uh, not just have the self-interest of uh, lower blood pressure, et cetera, is yeah. highly important and, and goes a long way when we're talking about karma to really understanding that how interconnected we are karmically with everybody. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that goes a long way to helping change our perspective. This is great. Always great to hang out with you, Lama. So everybody, the book is Wisdom Rising, and uh, you can I actually have a copy here. Yeah, there's a copy. Oh, beautiful! It's a that's a galley, so it, it it's not on the on the market yet. But but it uh it, yeah uh, just pre-order it. You you'll get all of the information when you go to uh, beherenownetwork.com/slash/mindrolling. And we'll have everything there, all the links. And, yeah, we'll even put a link to the I Ching so you can kind of investigate mm. that. That came out. And, of course, Jung, some of the Jung stuff. I mean, we'll, we'll put a bunch of different yeah. things up there. 
that uh, oh. that hopefully will help uh, on a day to day. So uh, and also we will also put a link to Tara Mandala, and you can uh, connect up and and visit if you're in Colorado. And I'll also you. be on the East Coast in various places with the book. Uh huh. Doing um, a tour in the summer of eighteen. Yeah. In, in May, actually, I'll be at Kripalu May 10th to 13th with Krishnadas mm-hmm. uh, and Shiva Ray. Uh, no, oh, yeah. Tonight. Oh, that's great. Three days. Yeah. He'll be uh, running there. Yeah, in New York at um, ABC Home on the 17th oh, of May. And I'll be in Washington and Boston and Nova Scotia and Key West, Florida, and mm. a bunch of places. That'll all be on the website. Uh, you'll be able to link over to Tower Mandala, and you'll see all of that. And if you're in the neighborhood, please go down, and uh, Lama will surely uh, autograph the book when you buy it. So there you go. Sure. <laughs> Love you, man. It's so great to just be with you. Uh, and this is always yeah. such a great opportunity for me. Never mind just doing a podcast. It's uh, this is yeah. this is for me, for me as well as everything everybody else. So this is um, Be Here Now Network. Go to beherenownetwork.com slash. Uh, well, just go there. Actually, all of Lama and my friends are up there, from Krishnadas to Sharon Salzberg to Joseph Goldstein to Lama Surya, and more, much more. Jack Cornfield, and uh, enjoy. And meanwhile, we shall see you next week. I'm mind rolling.